This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to go through the chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Slow Boat to Cuba. Now, if you want to hear the first eight chapters, you go back to episode 28 and then in episode 65 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, we have chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then this is the third part of the audiobook, which we're giving away for free thanks to our generous Patreons at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. The copyright is held by Linus Wilson, Oxford River Publishing, Vermilion Advisory Services. No portion of this audio recording may reproduce except brief quotations without the express written permission of the author or Oxford River Publishing. Enjoy! Here are chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 9, Senior Citizens and Dinghies. Stevie pulled up the well-dug-in mantis anchor, which had three inches of gray mud at its heavy tip. A few smaller sport fishing boats sped out the channel this morning, but the traffic was much subdued from the equally sunny Sunday when we arrived. Fiddling with the GoPro knockoff, I nearly missed the turn at the green buoy number three and ran into the three-foot depths. On the trip up to Venice Inlet, I had Stevie take off the solar panels and the covers that were on the rigid inflatable boat, rib, which was upside down between the mast and the bowsprit. While he did that, I put in oil and gasoline in the Honda 2.3 outboard. At Venice Inlet, I planned to anchor off the boat launch by the Yacht Club and Dinghy Inn. It made sense to ready the dinghy for that before getting into the inlet. We had not stepped on land in four days. Why should we wait? On my first pull of the Honda, it did not start. I drained some gas from the carburetor. In the glad slider bag, it looked clear and free of water. Then I realized my error. I had not given enough throttle. The little Hondas need to be started in gear with a good amount of gas. I had just left the steering arm and the throttle hanging down. Once I gave it some throttle, it started up from its mount on the stern pulpit. We were ready to go once we dropped the hook. We had a nice motor sail down the west coast of Florida in the Gulf of Mexico, and two of the cooling light went off five miles outside of Venice Inlet, or about an hour away. We shut it down immediately. I checked the belts, and the alternator belt was extremely loose. Stevie said the water depths were 30 feet, while I hunted for the relevant tools. I told him it was too deep to anchor. I did not want to haul out 150 feet of chain. Thus, I told him to tack out to sea. Working together, we had a clean tack with Stevie at the helm and my working the sheets. We had the full Genoa out at the tack. We furled that in until we were only going two to three knots. It made no sense to go quickly away from our destination. I fiddled with the adjustment for 40 minutes. This took longer than it should have because I could not find the correct socket wrench with the pivot arm. Eventually, I was able to use a large wrench to turn it and loosen the belt enough to replace it. The few weeks old belt was cracked and nearly split in several places. The advice for using belt grease, which I first used on this belt, seemed terrible. By the time the new belt was on, we were 7.5 miles away from Venice Inlet, and we motored in. We had no more lights and the water pump was shooting out water from the exhaust. 
Ironically, a similar problem plagued Tentango as we approached Venice Inlet from the south nearly a year earlier. A broken belt forced me to anchor to fix the problem on the day sail up to Venice Inlet. We missed Mother's Day by one day this year. Last year, with the same problem, Daly and I arrived a day before Mother's Day. We dropped the hook twice in five-foot depths. The first time, we looked like we were too close to the small sailboat Merry Christmas, which was moored just south of buoy 13, east of the Yacht Club and boat launch. When we dropped a second time, a sailing catamaran and a retired couple started scoping out spots right next to us. I thought they dropped right on top of our anchor and yelled that to them. The man said they had not. It turned out he was right. Regardless, they left the next day and we had no problems. Venice Inlet's anchorage had a lot of derelict boats that looked abandoned on informal moorings. One of the more notable ones was the motorboat that had pilot painted onto its wheelhouse. That steel boat had six anchors out and was just south of the ICW buoy 13. After we dinghied to the boat launch, I called my dad and he picked us up five minutes later. Stevie was eager to use my parents' Wi-Fi. He stayed at my parents' guest bedroom for most of the stay in part because of the conspicuous signs at the boat launch dock, which prohibited tying up between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m., I came back to the boat after dinner and a shower. Daly and I would stay on the boat at anchor overnight for the entire stay in Venice Inlet. I also get nervous leaving the boat unattended at anchor overnight. I've never done that and had no plans to. On the morning of the next day, I ran the engine at 1,700 RPMs for two hours because the batteries one and three showed two-thirds full. With the oil warm, I changed the oil, which was showing three-quarters lower than full, but one-quarter higher than low. Contango had burned a lot of oil since the last oil change. At low tide, the depth showed 3.0 feet or 0.2 feet lower than the bottom of our keel, given a 0.8 foot error on the depth sounder going to the chart plotter. We were aground. The motion is very nice in that situation. The AIS alarm woke me at 6.50 a.m. the next day, May 11, 2016. A boat on the ICW that posed no danger set it off. I turned off the AIS alarm. As I worked on the deck in the morning, I enjoyed watching the Optimist dinghies from the Venice Youth Sailing Association race with men and women who were mostly older than 60. I used my parents' car to go grocery shopping one last time before we left for Cuba. I also stopped at West Marine for one last time. I bought a $100 gaff hook, and the guy at the checkout said, it's a sailboat gaff hook. I never found out what that meant, but I think it was a slur in his mind. I filled up the diesel and secured all diesel jugs on the boards. I asked Stevie to rejoin the boat after his days in Wi-Fi heaven. Overnight batteries one and two were low despite running the engine every day for an hour or more. This was depressing given all the solar and wind power. The alternator was not boosting the batteries over 13 volts when on. Perhaps the wires were bad. Perhaps the old alternator was puny. It's too late to change it. I resolved to run the Honda generator in the morning to charge the batteries. I was toying with delaying the departure day to May 13th, but the router acted perplexed by that. 
I thought there were more favorable winds if I delayed a day in the Gulf Stream on Saturday and Sunday. After reloading the grip files, I saw the wind was shifting earlier, and suddenly the router's prediction of a low over the Yucatan was showing up in PassageWeather.com's charts. Departing tomorrow morning seemed like the best shot to get to Cuba and round the Yucatan Channel before bad weather hit. Stevie and I dinghied back onto the boat after dinner at my parents' house. We packed up our clean laundry and settled in for a morning departure. In the morning, I ran the newer Honda generator, which woke up Stevie, and he did not go back to bed until his off-watch underway. The generator ran forever and showed no signs of stopping before we left, since it was only running the battery charger. I had to turn it upside down and dump its contents in the gasoline can before stowing it in the cockpit hatch. I fooled with the water maker. It was not even pumping reject water brine, indicating a blockage. With the generator running, I tested to see if the air conditioner was working with the water maker off. The air conditioner had a clog in the lines. It gave an HPF error, indicating there was not enough seawater pumping to cool it. I opened the strainer with the intake seacock open and the water overflowed, indicating that the blockage was not at the intake. I opened up the hose higher up the line near the pump and the water ran freely. After the hose was reattached, no water was coming out the outtake side with the air conditioner running when I looked for a stream going into the water. I topped up the diesel tank and then topped up the jerry can by buying some more at the Crow's Nest Marina at the south side of Venice Inlet. I snapped pictures and videos of the green parrot Paco, who said, Hello and pretty bird. On the way to the Bahamas, I stayed at this marina. It was nice, but I found it pricey. You can watch Paco and our time at the marina in Season 1, Episode 2, Venice Inlet, episode on the YouTube channel, Slow Boat Sailing. An outtake blockage should not affect the water maker, which dumps out reject water into the sink. When I ran the water maker this time, I could see water flowing through its clear hoses. Some of the brine did come out in spurts, but very little fresh water came out. I timed the fresh water output which came out in a thin stream. It produced one-eighth a cup of water in 25 minutes. This was well below the rate of 1.5 gallons per hour it should be producing. The troubleshooting section of the manual said that it should be cleaned with alkaline solution and non-chlorinated water, preferably distilled water, should be used. I would have to settle for the boat's carbon-filtered stinky water. By this time, it was time to go. I did not want to leave after high tide. The anchorage was so shallow, you only want to move around on a rising tide and not a falling one. From our first interview, I told Stevie that we were not dependent on the water maker working. Further, I told him we would always go if it was broken. It was. Stevie and I hauled up the rib after I took off and stowed all its gear and secured the outboard. We lashed down the rib. Stevie single-handedly was able to pull up the chain until it was almost vertical. He needed the help of the engine to trip it because it was so well dug in. When I dove the mantis, it was so well dug in that I could only see the roll bar. It was 1.15 p.m. by this time. When I left the anchorage, the lowest depth was 4.2 on the plotter with the negative 0.8 error 
that meant the true depth was 5 feet. Subtracting the tidal stage of 1.6 meant the lowest spot I motored over was 3.4 feet at chart datum, the mean lower low water, which is the depth used on charts. This was right next to the green 13 ICW buoy just south of it. The anchorage had a lot going for it. First, there was a short dinghy ride to the crow's nest for fuel and water. Second, it boasted a dock to go ashore at the boat launch. Finally, it had exceptional holding at low water. Chapter 10, Offshore to Cuba. I think we were pretty close to slack water when I left the jetty. There was no evidence of current in contrast to when we came in. We saw a sail training boat near the entrance to Venice Inlet. With full sails limp, a glassy gulf of Mexico greeted us. On this passage, we tried a new watch rotation. On the last trip, there were all two-hour watches until 10 p.m. At night, there were two four-hour watches. At 6 a.m., the two-hour watches restarted. This meant that in the morning, the naps were too short. I thought that if we had three-hour watches in the morning, we would be better rested. The new rotation kept the four-hour watches overnight, but had three-hour watches in the morning and early afternoon. Right after dinner, there were two two-hour watches before the two four-hour watches started at 10 p.m. CV still got the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. night watch, and I stood the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. night watch. Before we went out of cell phone range, we hugged the coast while I called up the satellite phone provider about the tethering problems with my iPhone. I asked if I could tether with my Windows operating system laptop. They said that was impossible, but I could tether with my Android devices. I asked about my Kindle, and they said that should work. I downloaded the app for the Kindle and was able to sync it by Bluetooth to the satellite phone, greatly improving my satellite phone texting speeds. On my on-watch periods, when I wanted to text, I would have to redo the tethering process because Stevie really took advantage of the unlimited texting plan that I'd signed up for. You could not have his device and my device tethered to the satellite phone at the same time. Because of our slight diversion, it was not until 5 p.m. that we lost sight of land. Our weather router gave us many different waypoints so that we got the best lift from the currents in the Gulf of Mexico and avoided the adverse currents of the Gulf Stream and Yucatan, which were heading east and north, respectively, opposing our southwest course. When I plugged them in, I realized that I had no detail beyond the dry tortugas. I needed to put the Western Caribbean chip, which retailed for $215, if I wanted to see points south of the Florida Keys, including Cuba. We would find this chip worthless in Cuba waters, at least. We would sail far west of the Florida Keys and dry tortugas to get to Marina Los Moros at Cabo San Antonio, Cuba. The day was sultry. There was a glassy calm. When we got in deep enough water, I planned to test deploy our offshore Fiorentino para-anchor. I thought that this was a great opportunity to get familiar with the process in the most benign conditions that I could hope for. I planned to do it 
Before we crossed the Gulf Stream and were northwest of the Dry Tortugas, I planned to do it on my on-watch of the first morning when the water would be deeper than 100 feet. I did not want to use the primary or secondary anchor road because it had too much chain spliced to the road. Our pawls, known as chain stoppers, let the person pulling the anchor rest. The pawls require chain-to-road slices if you want to use the road because metal eyes were too big. Otherwise, if you used eye splices on the road, you could use your road on your primary or secondary anchor for the para-anchor. I planned to use the Kedge Anchor Road. When I got it from the bottom of the port cockpit hatch, I found its bag zipper had rusted shut. I was using a soft-sided cooler to hold the Kedge Anchor Road. I had never tried kedging in Contango. The times I had been grounded, I was in the ICW and in the range of towboat U.S., with whom I had towing insurance. I had to cut the bag open to get the five feet of chain and 120 feet of half inch road. Ideally, you would have more road than this for deploying the sea anchor. Fiorentino recommends 10 feet of road for each foot of boat length. That would be 310 feet for our 31 foot boat. I did not have any road that long and substituting hundreds of feet of chain would make the anchor sink too much. The Kedge Road was the best I could do for the moment. First, I used the 3 8 inch anchor shackle to attach the super heavy duty stainless swivel end of the para anchor to the chain and road. I wanted to set up a bridle so that we could adjust the angle of the para anchor. An old halyard was tied to the end of the snap shackle big enough for the road. The other end of the old halyard was run through an extra track block for the asymmetrical spinnaker sheets and onto a sheet winch on the starboard side. I unfurled the Genoa and turned off the engine. I back-winded the Genoa, turning the tiller to windward. It was still calm, and we had not turned off the motor since leaving Venice. With the engine off, I deployed the sea anchor, which sank immediately. It was stunningly calm and I could see the red offshore shoot over 60 feet down. I hauled the gear back up. It was not a test in the conditions that the Fiorentino para-anchor was intended for, but it was helpful to learn how to use the gear in benign conditions. If there were any forces on the boat, the para-anchor would have held ahead of the boat and not sank. Moreover, Removing the chain is always an option if the sea anchor is submerging too much. The chain length can be adjusted to keep the anchor more or less submerged. The para-anchor has sewn in weights so that it will submerge in all but the strongest winds. Clearly, five feet of chain was overkill today. I also learned that I could have attached the snatch block after throwing the para-anchor overboard if needed. As Fiorentino's videos instruct, the use of the snatch block is optional based on the motion observed after the deployment of the para-anchor. Finally, I learned that the trip line, which I attached to an extra-large fender as a second float, was not so much needed to pull the para-anchor towards the boat. Instead, it was necessary to not lift up a huge mass of water as I hauled the sea anchor onto the deck. It seemed easy 
at least in these conditions, to pull the para-anchor closer to the boat, but it was impossible to pull the open parachute onto the deck full of water. In heavier conditions, tripping may be essential to pull the anchor towards the boat, not just the deck. I highly recommend testing your sea anchor in light winds and deep water so you can be more efficient and make fewer mistakes when you face heavier conditions. I furled in the Genoa and turned on, on the engine after bringing in all the gear. It was still glassy calm and there was no wind whatsoever. In my next watch period, with the main and Genoa set, we made 2.5 knots over the water. I told Stevie that we should try flying the asymmetrical spinnaker when he got on watch. There were a few mishaps doing this. We had to run the sheets through twice. We got a fair lead. I forgot that I had to raise the sock behind the Genoa sheet on the leeward side. When I finally raised it, the snap shackle holding it to deck came loose and started flapping wildly. I was able to snap the track back down before the sail got wet, but the bag did get a little salt water on it. At the same time, my harness got hopelessly tangled with the port spinnaker sheet, complicating the sail rescue. When we finally had a clean hoist, I was only able to move us three knots over water with apparent wind speeds of one knot. This was not the boost that I had hoped for. There was just not enough wind. The true wind was closer to three knots, since most of the wind was behind us. With a 0.7 knot of foul current, we were just making two knots over the ground. We took some photos and turned back on the Iron Jenny before bringing it down with the dowsing sock on the asymmetrical spinnaker. We raised full Genoa to improve fuel efficiency. Our pre-departure forecast had called for 10 to 15 knot winds, but we had closer to zero to five knots of wind. In my off-watch naps in the morning and afternoon, I became more refreshed and felt like fishing. I deployed the squid skirt with 40 feet of 50-pound test and 30 feet of 200-pound test line with the 4-inch cedar plug. I saw dolphins approaching and snapped marvelous pictures and videos of the dolphins playing in the clear, glassy blue water of the Gulf of Mexico. I got a nibble from the squid skirt. The line started running as I was taking pictures of the dolphins. I needed gloves to haul in the line. It definitely was heavier than seaweed. My bare hands were getting burned by the line. I called for Stevie to get ready with the gaff hook. As he came up, the line went completely slack. I hauled in the slack line and the skirt and the hook at least were in perfect condition, but 70 of the 100 feet of line was hopelessly tangled. My big fish got away, and all the time that I had trawled while cruising, this seemed to be the most promising nibble. This trip with Stevie was the first time I had brought squid skirts and cedar plugs. By the time I was off watch at 6 p.m., I was burning up in the sun. The low sun under the bimini and solar arch left no shade in the cockpit. Even the cabin was cooler than the cockpit. I thought we had entered the Gulf Stream when we passed Loggerhead Key from the far west. It was not visible by sight. I was proven wrong when an hour later we were in four to five foot waves. The seas were lumpy and confused in the zero to five knots of wind. I could not imagine what it would be like in 15 to 20 knots of wind from the east-northeast 
opposing current. When we hit our westward turn, based on the weather router's waypoints, our motion improved. I loosened the main sheet because the wind was more on our beam, but the main flung around so much in the sloppy seas that I sheeted it in. For the first time since leaving Venice, I put a reef in the main. I then put in a second. The main was not giving us much lift, and the double reef had it flop less. For the second night in a row, Stevie had to wake me when my iPhone's alarm did not at 2 a.m. That sound must have been on mute. He said there were several boats around on AIS, but none were visible. My refrain when switching watch was always, did you see any boats? Stevie's most common response was no. If we were lucky, news of a dolphin or a bird sighting might be exchanged. As I came out, an orange-setting moon was lighting the horizon. This Gulf Stream crossing was desolate compared to my first crossing of it in Contango near Miami over a year before. Our speed had been slowed this time considerably since turning more eastward against the Gulf Stream. At 3.14 a.m., I altered course for a southern vessel showing green over white light and a white stern light that was likely a commercial trawler. I slowed down to 3.5 knots from 4.6 over ground and moved 20 degrees to port. This unknown vessel on AIS bound for the Yucatan at over 13 knots passed in front of the bow and disappeared. Later I saw red over white with a white stern light. This was likely a commercial fishing vessel. It seemed our southwest course was a favorite of fishermen. While this was going on, I only cleared the cedar plug of seaweed. I was not taking advantage of these fishing grounds. At 5 a.m., I spotted two yellow lights to port. I had been continually filling the diesel on the trip, shutting down the engine after finding a good sailing angle with the Genoa unfurled. Each time I got out a new jerry can, I examined the leftovers in the water trap of my strainer and funnel. Each time it looked clean and without water. This night I saw dirt in the diesel in my glad slider and absorbed it with paper towels. I put that trash bag under the dinghy to dispose of ashore. The refueling process involved the following. Untying a full jerry can, hauling it back into the cockpit, setting the sails, putting spill rags in strategic locations to catch any stray diesel, shutting down the engine, emptying the cans into the tank with an extra large funnel and strainer, sealing the fuel fill, examining the water, or dirt in the trap, using paper towels on hand if it was contained to absorb it in the glad slider bag, storing the glad slider bag under the Walker Bay dinghy, darting the engine, furling the Genoa if we had a bad wind angle or on our desired course, changing back to our preferred course and retying and lashing the empty jerry can to the bow board. My slow, hot, and tired mind did this pretty slowly, and I needed to start a couple hours before Stevie came on watch to get this done before he relieved me. I did not want to miss sleep doing something I could do on watch. 
I also did this frequently so the tank never got less than three quarters or half full. A low fuel tank and a sloppy sea is a recipe for a clogged fuel filter. Because my boat is so small relative to many cruising boats, 25 gallons doubles Contango's range under power when it would hardly affect a bigger boat's range. I corresponded with one owner of a big cruising cat who said he took extra fuel on an upwind passage. He carried 25 extra gallons. It only increased his boat's effective range by 20%. Because Contango is so small, Diesel costs are minuscule relative to larger boats and always rank low relative to food, repairs, and agent or government fees. This is one more reason that I believe small is better than big in cruising boats. Other benefits of smaller boats are lighter sails and anchor tackle, which make you less dependent on electric windlasses and winches that can and do break and exceptionally lower cost for every piece of gear or repair. After our second full night at sea on May 14th, we turned south once again and sped up as we were no longer opposing the Gulf Stream. We had favorable currents speeding us up until the Gulf Stream. Our tricky dance of avoiding the powerful northbound Yucatan and eastbound Gulf Stream currents meant we had been slowed since dinner the previous night, May 13. While refueling that morning, I checked the oil and found it had been halfway between low and full. It was full a few days earlier. I topped it up. Our engine burns oil, and it certainly got a lot of hours since we left Venice. By this time, I could feel some wind on the back of my neck. We were on a broad reach, I thought. I raised the full mane and unfurled the Genoa. The furling line got stuck as it came out. I had to go forward to unstick it from the small gap in the guides on the drum. I was always puzzled as to why the furling drum had these gaps in the top of the guides. To me, no good could come of them. Stevie soon spotted the outline of the coast. I was skeptical at first, but he convinced me soon after. What do you say when you see land, I probed. Stevie smirked and said, Land ho! The satellite phone's weather forecast for our location was five knots of wind and 92 degrees Fahrenheit. It was going to be a hot one. Our router at this point stopped giving us waypoints, so I paralleled the reef a few miles offshore and several miles off Cuba's Pinar del Rio region's hilly coastline. There were very few settlements to see here. This was a marvelous downwind sail. We even briefly benefited from the one-knot Cuban countercurrent that flowed from east to west, the opposite direction of the Gulf Stream. On Stevie's 6 to 8 p.m. watch, we jibed because we were getting too close to the reef that protected the coast and turned more offshore. The hilly Pinar del Rio region that we were sailing by at dusk and through the night was definitely remote. Scores of miles from the Florida coast, Stevie and I could see the glow on the horizon. That was the glow of civilization. In Pinar del Rio, we could only see a few lights from a small village. The rest was darkness. By the start of my 8 to 10 p.m. watch, we were getting closer to the shipping lanes, which were still several miles off. The fair current had disappeared, and our arrival in the marina slipped later into the morning. The wind that had been pushing us at more than five knots died down. We started to wallow, and I turned 
on the engine briefly, and a faint charging light came on. It was not as bright as at the start, but I thought I should investigate. It was amazing how little explanation of the meaning of the charging light was in the Yanmar manuals. All they said was that it should illuminate at the start. I checked the batteries, which were only showing 12.1 volts. I suspected a belt problem. The alternator belt was very loose. I got out my tools with the boat constantly threatening to jibe. Then I noticed a ship off to the starboard. Stevie was off watch, but unusually he was not sleeping. He offered to stay at the helm while I worked with the engine off. I tightened but did not replace the belt, and he was back in his berth in two minutes. I turned on the engine and saw how bright the fully on charging light was. The dim glow of the charging light persisted, but I ignored it as we motored on into the night. When Stevie took over at 6 a.m., I told him to wake me when we were six miles out. I did not sleep much, and he got me up before his watch ended at 8 a.m. We both were keyed up about the impending arrival as we entered the 15 to 30 foot depths of the wide open Golfo de Guanajaca BBs, where Marina Los Moros was located. Stevie had prudently steered about half a mile north of my waypoints to put that much more sea room between us and the charted reefs one mile to the south. That may have deprived us of some of the countercurrent, but we would arrive plenty early. This meant we were farther north when we turned south into the Golfo de Guanajaca BBs. That put us beam on in the choppy seas with the east wind and made it harder to sleep. I laid out my documents, including both our passports, the Certificate of Documentation, and Daly's Veterinarian Certificate, prior to going off watch at 6 a.m. When I woke, I put on slacks, the nicest shirt I had, and boat shoes. Chapter 11, Marina Los Moros at Cabo San Antonio. About seven miles out, I called for the marina as directed by Cheryl Barr at the Slow Boat Sailing Podcasts, episode 17, Guest. She also added that if you call 12 miles out as required, they won't hear you. The Garda Frontera typically only have handheld VHFs at the marinas. I did get a response. A NOAA research vessel responded to my first hail asking if I needed assistance. I said that I did not. I did not believe it was from that branch of the federal government, but I was already in Cuban waters. Thus, it was unlikely that Contango would be asked for our CG-3300 permit by a U.S. boarding party before we reached the marina. We entered the channel filming as we went, as we approached, there was a blue Cuban fishing boat named Pinar del Rio at the dock, nearest to the rocky jetty close to the shore. Towards the end of the dock was a baby blue-colored sports fishing boat. There did not seem to be enough room for us between the sport fishing boat and the Pinar del Rio, or in front of the sport fishing boat. I thought anchoring to the east of the only pier was the best option because that gave us the most room. The skipper of the Pinar del Rio signaled that we should anchor to the west of it, 
While that does give some protection from the east swell, the area between the pier and the shore is very tight and had unforgiving land on three sides. It was a lee shore, and there was no north protection. Cheryl Barr's guide recommended anchoring to the northeast end of the unprotected dock. I think that is a prudent recommendation, despite the Cuban fishermen's protestations that we should anchor to the southeast to take advantage of, of the pier breaking up the east swells. It is just too tight. A wind shift, dragging anchor, or too much scope could put your boat on the beach or the rocks permanently. Landing a dinghy on the pier seemed pretty risky with that high concrete wall. It probably would be worth asking if I could raft to another dock boat and ask to step over their decks onto shore. I'm not sure a beach landing would be allowed or practical, and a lot of that shore is covered in rocks. A hard-sided dinghy would be preferred for any landing if you plan to tie directly to the pier or make a shore landing. Always check with the Garter Frontera before attempting a shore landing. I had originally planned to tie up portside on the west side of the concrete pier, but with the sport fishing boat there, I thought backing in with the starboard side tie would be the safest. I did not want to tangle our bow with their bow. The sport fishing boat tired of this spectacle and decided to push off and go fishing. They nearly took off our bowsprit to shout on their way out, You're just getting fuel, right? Because we'll be back. That suited me fine since Jana's weather research transmitted by satellite phone text said that today was the best day to cross to the Isla de Juventud. It was a hundred mile plus passage against the trade winds. I had no desire to wait for weeks in the La Lena anchorage next to the Marina Los Moros to wait for calm conditions similar to today. After the fishing boat moved out of the way, I gave up on backing in and resumed my normal plan of a port side tie. The skipper of the Pinar del Rio, whose name we would later learn to be Mason, caught a line, as did the Garda Frontera officer. They struggled a bit to bring the boat in. The bow line was thrown by Stevie, and I walked the stern line up until I could just hand it to the Garda Frontera officer. The stern line came untied from the cleat hitch, by that time, the boat was well secured to the dock. We put out the fender board that I had made from the two giant fenders secured with three-quarter inch double braid and a four-foot long, two-inch by six-inch board. It was the suggestion of the cruising guide author, Cheryl Barr. I had been working on it on the passage. It kept the middle of the boat from rubbing against the concrete dock. The check-in was really smooth and perhaps took 30 minutes from the paperwork and inspections and another hour of tying up loose ends about changing money to pay the Coop 55 $64 cruising permit and Coop 75 $87 per person fees. Stevie paid his visa fee as we agreed to in advance. The loosening of U.S. restrictions for American boaters traveling to Cuba had coincided with arrival fees tripling from Cook 25 to Cook 75 in the last year.
The medical inspector took our temperature with a device aimed at our forehead. He wore a white lab coat for effect. The agricultural inspector approved Daly's pet permit, and he asked for $6 to cover the five kook cost. There was a 13% tax on dollars, making the one-to-one -one convertibility of the kook to the dollar effectively $1.13 per kook. While the agricultural inspector was filling out his paper, Daly peed outside the pee pad near the inspector's feet and started pooping. I quickly whisked Daly to the starboard side of the boat to finish what he had started. The agricultural inspector was thus saved from stepping in dog poo. I changed 260 for Coop 225 at the bar. The bartender said that he drank the water. It smelled and tasted good. My salinity tester said it was a safe 400 parts per million, and I topped off the water tanks with it. I had to move the boat slightly from the shore to reach the shore power outlet. I still got the HBF error from the air conditioner, indicating a clog. I mostly wanted to charge the batteries, which were on the low end of 12 volts, despite days of motoring. After we got all the government on and off, I asked to refill the diesel. Eventually, the diesel guy came around. After I plugged into the shore power, dumped the trash, and got out the hose, the diesel smelled very strong, and it was a dirty-looking yellow. I made sure to fill through the filter and the water trap. This took forever. Our language barrier and confusion between liters and gallons stymied my attempts to estimate how much had gone in. Only when the numbers were way too high did I conclude that the diesel guy was quoting liters. The other cruising sailboat that arrived after us was waiting to pump right after I finished. A wave hit and the tank overflowed, having me scrambling to mop up the mess. Stevie brought up more paper towels and diesel pads. At that moment, the Garda Frontera officer came back for a signature, and I briefly abandoned my mopping up. I just damned the diesel from spilling overboard while I was distracted by that signature and then filling the jerry cans because of the waiting boater. My slow cleaning allowed some diesel to soak into the teak, and I found this smell nauseating once we left the marina. I would later try washing the teak with soapy water or 409 spray, but the awful smell persisted. The teak was also darker for many days. Stevie made friends with Mason and the two 20-year-olds named Lisbon and Isbon, who went by the nicknames Thing One and Thing Two, according to Stevie. Stevie got out his guitar and started playing. Stevie had backpacked in Central America after the Galapagos Passage that went bad. They gave him dinner, and Stevie asked them to give me a plate after my shower. They had fried wahoo and huge plates of rice and beans. Stevie said Mason was having trouble with his handheld garment chart plotter. It needed a card or batteries or something. I got the impression that some kind of charity was expected, but I did not take the bait and kept quiet. Stevie and I got a free meal, and I am expected to give away a $250 piece of gear. That seemed like a bad trade to me. 
I told Stevie to get a shower because we'd be pushing off soon. We got showers in the marina. There was no shower head. There was just a continuous stream of water, but the cold water felt great. It was very hot the whole trip down and in the marina. The humidity was almost 100%. There was no toilet paper in the toilet, but more problematic, there were no toilet seats either. It would prove a challenge to find toilet seats the whole trip. Perhaps I should have packed one. Stevie said toilet seats were pretty rare in his Central American travels before joining Contango. Chapter 12, Rounding Cabo San Antonio. The forecast was for stronger and more southerly winds in a day or two. I thought that would make for an uncomfortable ride with the whole fetch of the Caribbean Sea once we rounded Cabo San Antonio to the south coast of Cuba. I did not believe that the more southerly wind shift would be enough for us to sail close hauled. I also was very conscious of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast's Episode 5 guest, Wally Moran's, having to turn around rounding Cabo San Antonio because of big waves in the Yucatan Channel. I wanted to try that rounding today. It was too bad I could anchor in La Lena and try tomorrow. If I waited, I may miss the good weather today, and there would be no weather as good for weeks. As I readied the lines, I pondered how loose the edge of the concrete pier was. It seemed it could easily crumble underfoot in many places. I resolved to only step on the edges that were not crumbling. I doubled the lines and was ready to go when Stevie returned from the shower. We both felt rested and had not really adjusted to non-watch sleeping, so one more day did not seem so bad. Stevie and I pushed off easily, with Mason and crew tossing us a line. We easily turned around and motored out the channel. While we were checking in, Mason had motored his command, the Pinar del Rio, to the end of the pier to allow another cruising boat to dock after we had tied up. We waved goodbye to the friendly crew of that brightly colored fishing boat with the Cuban flag painted on its blue hull as we motored out the channel. Since the other cruising boat had already departed, bound for Isla Mujeres, Mexico, I had plenty of room to turn the south-facing contango. The fishing boat at the end of the pier was no problem when we passed the Pinar del Rio after making a 360-degree turn. The wind seemed due north but gentle as it pushed Contango away from the Cuban fishing boat towards the shore. We followed Barr's recommendation and took the longer, less direct route, motoring out the Paso Los Moros rather than the shortcut over the northern lands and Punta Cajon. The closer in route, the Paso Sorda was mentioned in Calder's Guide, but it seemed an unnecessary risk on a lee shore, even in the calm conditions of this Sunday in May. Certainly, the beach views would have been better at Passasorda. I found swells of zero to three feet in the Yucatan Channel, and the current was only about half a knot as we passed Roncalli Lighthouse, two miles west of the western tip of Cuba. 
I was really worried about Barr's warning in her guide and Moran's warning in episode five of the podcast that I should stay well off Punta Perpetua, where breakers were marked on the charts. I sailed two miles west of the breakers marked in Navionics. Nigel Calder wrote in Cuba, a cruising guide, that his scariest time in a boat was 20 to 25 knots of north winds in the Yucatan Channel. That wind against current made steep and dangerous seas for his trip from New Orleans to Cuba. Such conditions seemed hardly possible this Sunday afternoon. The five-knot north winds we had were forecast to shift five to ten knots from the east tomorrow. I teared up as we entered the Caribbean Sea. Six years after sailing for the first time on the eastern Caribbean island of Antigua, I had done what so many sailors dream of. I had sailed my boat to the Caribbean Sea. We kept our two-mile distance from Punta de Hollandes and Cabo Corrientes as we skipped the Bahia de Corrientes. Bahia de Corrientes makes the western end of Cuba look like a high-heeled lady's shoe. The Bahia de Corrientes looks like, on the map, the arch between the sole and the heel with the toe pointed west. The anchorage near the dive resort and marina at Maria La Gorda was poor at the only port open to cruising boats in the Bahia de Corrientes. Maria Lagorda had reportedly four moorings, but they were often taken up by dive boats. For that reason, I did not seriously consider stopping. Further stopping at Maria Lagorda would have squandered the light winds for getting easting to Isla Juventud. As it turns out, I communicated with another boater who visited Maria Lagorda the same time that Stevie and I passed it up. They said the moorings were free. I don't regret the decision, given our difficulty making easting in Cuba's Golfo de Bontabano after this overnight passage. We were close-hauled and motor sailing with full Genoa south of the Bahia de Corrientes. The northeast wind turned more east on the nose, and I was forced to roll up the Genoa. In this deep blue water, the swells were only one to two feet, and we made good progress through the night. With a half-moon lighting our way, we last saw a flashing light from the land by Cabo Corrientes. From there until we approached the Isla de Juventud, we were well offshore as the south coast fell away in the middle of the open ocean between Cabo Corrientes until we entered the channel of the Ensenada de Sanguinea. The waves built to three feet, and we slowed by 0.7 knots. Nevertheless, we were still making our easting relatively quickly at nearly five knots. We made out hills over the haze of the morning. At first I thought they were the Cayos Los Indios, but further reading of the chart and guides convinced me that we saw the peaks of Isla de Juventud. The charted Cayos Los Indios, which lay between us and Isla Juventud were supposed to be low-lying mangrove mudflats. Christopher Columbus spent many frustrating months in his magnificent fourth and final voyage to the Americas. 
at the Isla de Juventud. His ships were destroyed by worms. A small contingent of his crew and some natives took a canoe and paddled to Hispaniola. They had to convince a reluctant governor and rival of Columbus to rescue the admiral of the ocean sea and his crew. At that time, Columbus called Isla Juventud Isla de Pinos, or Island of Pines. The name was changed to Isla Juventud, Island of Youth, after Fidel Castro came to power in Cuba. When we left the 6,000-foot depths and entered the shelf, the Ensenada de Seguinea in the channel had 14 to 31-foot depths and was well marked. Once in the shallower water, we turned north to the first all-weather anchorage since La Lena. That gave us a beam reach sailing along in pretty flat water towards the Ensenada de los Barcos on the northwest corner of the Isla de Juventud. Unfortunately, this northward turn was followed by a shift in winds from 5 to 10 knots from the southeast to 15 to 20 knots from the northeast, the direction that we were headed. The large bay was over three miles long from the entrance on the southwest to the northeast extremity, where there was some protection from the wind and two-foot chop. The Ensenada could have held the entire fleet at the Georgetown Cruising Regatta, 200 sailboats strong. After a long motor, we dropped the hook in the northeast corner in the seven-foot depths and put out 65 feet of chain attached to a 30-foot snubber. With a three-foot freeboard, that gave us over nine-to-one scope. I tried backing down, but the Mantis 45-pound anchor would not budge. Stevie dove it and said only the roll bar was visible on the grassy bottom. I tried doing the same when it was my time to swim and shower, but my ears hurt too much long before I got close to the anchor. I think that my spearfishing career was doomed to be a short and unproductive one. I did chip off some barnacles off the rudder, but otherwise the bottom looked very good. The water clarity was excellent. It was just the grassy bottom that made the water seem unreadable. Flies invaded the boat immediately after anchoring. I made the mistake of cooking tater tots in the oven. Our first full night of sleep since leaving Venice four days earlier was a very sweaty one. All right, we're going to give you another uh, installment of Slow Boat to Cuba in the next episode of the podcast. I'm Linus Wilson. Thanks to our Patreons at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Until next time, have some fun on the water. Bye-bye. If you can't wait to the next episode, the print and ebook versions are available on Amazon and the full audiobook is available to patrons at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Mm-hmm.